Let's open our Bibles to uh, the Psalms 136, 37, and 38 is our goal for this evening. As we look at uh, Psalm 136, we call this a hallelujah psalm. The psalm praises God for his creation, for his redemption, and fighting his enemies for the future glory. But the main thing about Psalm 136 that I'll draw your attention to right away is that um, every verse has the same refrain, and, and that is, for his mercy endures forever. So as we read every verse, what you're going to notice after each one of them is that his mercy endures forever. Now the difference between God's grace and God's mercy is this. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You're being gracious. By, um, the Lord's being gracious. He's getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you do deserve. So here, his mercy endures forever. Let's look at the first three verses, and it deals with this whole idea of just um, really doing what we're doing tonight and um, in our time of uh, taking time to worship the Lord. We read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he's good. His mercy endures forever. It's repeated, Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. So here, repeated three times, is this refrain of just being thankful for what the Lord has done. Colossians 3, verse 15, says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body. And then it simply says, be thankful. We should be the... um, the most grateful people in the world because we've experienced uh, his mercy in not getting what we do deserve. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Yeah. And um, we know what we deserve, and yet his mercy is forever. That should create this natural attitude of gratitude of just being a thankful person for for big things, for little things, and just being thankful to the Lord. We sang a song on Sunday Give thanks to the Lord, and part of it is this command, and um, many times you'll see people raising their hands in church, and they go, why do you do that? And the simple answer is is in the Psalms, it says, give thanks to the Lord, and and raise and lift your hands to him. So by doing it, it might be spontaneous. I can actually remember the very, very first time I raised my hands to the Lord. I hadn't been in church, so I didn't know it was something that people actually did. Somebody in Milwaukee gave me the, the original love song album, the first one that came out. And um, uh, at the end of it, I remember sitting in my parents' living room and I had it on a uh, nice, well, turntables back in those days. And uh, it got to that last part, Welcome Back to Jesus. And... Um, it was a natural, spontaneous thing of just doing this. And I, nobody ever told me about doing it. I never read about doing it. I just did it because it was a natural, spontaneous thing to do. Welcome back to Jesus. And uh, I was simply grateful. And then I found out when I went to a couple churches that people actually did that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, okay, I can get it. It makes sense to me. But uh, we sang a song on, on Sunday. It talks about lifting your hands to the Lord. So part of 
of uh, worship as being as part of just being obedient to what the scripture tells us to do. And here we're told three times over and over again, give thanks to the Lord. So we really have incorporated that in our ministry here at Calvary, that a big part of what we do is designed around worship and giving thanks to the Lord. Letting go of the day, the busyness of it and everything that goes along with it. And um, it's like the old song, the things of this world grow strangely dim when you're focused on the Lord. And um, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing when it happens. Verses 4 through 9 deal with uh, the Lord's um, greatness over his creation, being the creator. Verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. And to him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. And the moon and the stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. I was listening to uh, uh, Stand Up for the Truth this morning. They had Jay Seeger on. And um, Jay's going to be with us uh, with Rick Oliver for our creation uh, conference that we're having in the end of June. And um, uh, Jay's just an extremely articulate man. And of course, his major is in uh, creation. And he was, he was just really given a defense um, for the scriptures being inerrant and without any mistakes uh, whatsoever, beginning with Genesis 1 going all the way to Revelation 22. And uh, that's really where we hang our hat when, when we come to studying that, this book. Um, he was throwing out some stats just how Every year, it's going down and down and down uh, with the fight over the inerrancy of the book that you're holding in your hand. And I don't know if I was listening to him or if I was listening to somewhere else about um, the debate that's going on currently uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. They're split right down the middle. Half of them are holding and staying the course, saying this book um, is God's word and it is without error. Uh, the other half, on the other hand, is saying um, they have, they're not holding to that, and they're not holding to the complete inerrancy of Scripture. And um, I, I think it was Jay that was talking about this morning. I could have heard it somewhere else. And he says, you know, sometimes it's not such a bad idea to, to have a split if it's going to be over that sort of a doctrinal issue. I've lost some really good friends over doctrinal issues because I simply refuse to compromise on certain absolutes. And probably the most absolute of all absolute things that you cannot budge on is the inerrancy of the Word of God. Somebody's a good time for an amen at that one. And this is, where, this is where we stand or fall because as soon as you take just one out, then you become the authority. And if you make it something other than what it says, then who's to say somebody else can't do the same thing? And now you've opened the Pandora's box. So there's a lot of ways. Um, um, I think Jay got into talking about the 40 different authors over 1,600 years period of time. 
um, each different, having different personalities, and yet this, there's perfect theme that the Holy Spirit working through these men have, have just maintained the integrity of the book that you have. My argument would be Bible prophecy. And uh, that's, to me, the strongest uh, that we have because only God could tell an event before it happens, and uh, that's what makes him God. We read these scriptures here, and we're in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens of, of the earth. And I've often said, if you can handle that one verse, what problem do you have with him maintaining a book <laughs> and uh, have it divinely inspired and uh, kept and um, having these 66 books? So verses 4 through 9, and uh, I think we're going to be in Psalm 139 on Sunday. I'm pretty sure, but it, because of events today, I might stick in 137 but in verse 14 of 139 says I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well your soul knows that there's a God your soul knows that you are created and Romans 1 said uh, even non-believers know it but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness oh they know uh, you can't walk around and observe God's creation without knowing that something, somebody put this all together. You may not know him personally, but God says, you're without excuse. Why? Because of creation. And uh, they, su- they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Why don't people believe it? Well, it's easy. They don't want to have anybody or anyone tell them what they can and can't do. And let's face it, when we come to Jesus, we call him our Lord right, and Savior. And um, <laughs> I can't help but think of Peter and him, and him having a dialogue with, uh, with the Lord. And uh, the Lord was telling him what was going to happen to him. And, and Peter says, not so, Lord. <laughs> well, that's, that's an oxymoron. You can't say, not so and Lord, otherwise he's not, not your Lord. Huh, I just thought of something that happened to me last week. I was uh, walking my trail in, uh, in uh, Arizona, and I have uh, just the greatest time uh, fellowshipping with the Lord, walking what they call the Treasure Loop at Lost Dutchman State Park. Uh, they let dogs go on, on this trail, but you have to carry little doggy bags with you, okay? And uh, I walked two days in a row, and the first day I walked by, and here's this little doggy bag, um, laying along, along my trail. And I said, they didn't pick up their doggy bag, and I know it's inside of there. Well, that was one day. So now the next day comes, and I'm getting back, and I said, Lord, look at that. It's still there. And I'm 10 steps past it. And the Lord says, you go pick it up, and you put it there. And I said, no. And I stopped myself, and the guy said, I just said no to the Lord. <laughs> And it was the funniest thing. I just started laughing. Nobody was around to see me laugh. But I went back and I picked up the little doggy bag and I'm da, 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 garbage can here, plop there. But I, I couldn't help but think of Peter. And when you come to the Lord, people don't come to the Lord. Why? Because you lose the right to be number one. Somebody want to give me any minute? You're in second place. Um, 
In James, it says uh, you can make your plans. Next year, we're going to go to this city, and we're going to buy this. We're going to sell that. You can make your plans, but make sure that you specify it and clarify it by saying, if the Lord wills, then I'll do this or this or this. So you can make your plans. There's nothing wrong with that. But you say, Lord, let it be your will. I mean, if you want to change things around, go ahead and change things around. You're, you're the boss. I was, I was uh, wondering if I was ever going to tell that doggy story or not. I guess I, guess I did. But I, I, I just burst out laughing because I said, I'm not going to pick that thing up. And they, the Lord says, you go pick it up. And I said, I'm not going to pick that thing up. Well, I got to tell the story. It was worth it now. All right, so verses 4 through 9 deal with the greatness of his creation. He's the creator. And we, we are aware that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And it is marvelous to see his creation. And I know it all too well. My soul knows it all too well, how great he is. 10 through the rest of this chapter is going to deal with the greatness of God's deliverance of his people out of the land of Egypt. Um, The parallel would be the Lord bringing us out of the world and how he has provided for us as we walk this walk of faith. This is an Old Testament picture, really, of uh, the Christian's life, that God is going to bring us into his promises and the place that he's prepared for us. Well, he had a place prepared for Israel. So let's pick it up in verse 10. To him who struck Egypt in the firstborn, for his mercy endures forever. Brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand, with an outstretched arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his mercy endures forever. And made Israel pass through in the midst of it, for his mercy endures forever. And he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. Let's just stop there and look at the picture. It was by the blood of the lamb, if it was applied to your door, that you were able to leave. It was called the Exodus. And they left the world. Because when you accepted Christ, you applied the blood of of the lamb to the door of your house, and you came out of the world. The world... the name church actually means called out ones. We mentioned it last Sunday. Come out from among them and be separate, and I'll receive you, says the Lord. So it's this gradual coming out of, of the world. Well, in Acts 2, Peter said, people were saying, well, now what do we do? And he says, well, believe and be baptized. So after coming out, the very first thing that we see is them going through the water. Now, when we have a baptism, I explained to people, it's symbolic. What you're basically doing is you're outwardly showing what has happened to you inwardly by going down into the water. Romans 6, verses 1 through 3, talks about a funeral, dying to the old man. And you are making your first public confession. Old life passes away, goes down in the water, come back up, this new person. It's a picture. And something dies in the water. Oh, what? The old life. And in this case, it was Pharaoh's soldiers that represented Egypt, the world. So there's the picture. 
And then they get to the other side, and the first thing they do is sing a song, the song of Moses. And um, music takes on a whole new meaning. You got something to sing about, number one. You got someone to sing to, uh, the Lord, and they, they sang the song of Moses. We'll pick it up. Um, verse 16, now you begin your walk. Uh, to him who led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. They're walking by faith. They go to Sinai, and they, they get and receive the word of God, just like we do when we come to Christ. To him who struck down great kings, for his mercy endures forever. He slew famous kings, for his mercy endures forever. Sihon, the king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. So these battles that, um, that we experience, we have giants in our life when we come to Christ. And um, we learn, like David, uh, to trust in the Lord. And it's a matter of perspective. Nobody would fight. Saul should have been the guy to go after Goliath. Why? Because he was a head taller than every, everybody else in Israel. But he wouldn't do it, and, no, and nobody else did. His perspective was, a giant is bigger than me. I'm not doing this. David looked at it and said, that guy's history, because my God is going to take his head off. So David's perspective was completely different than Saul's. And uh, David said, let me at him. You're a dead man, giant. And I'm going to take your head off today. And that's exactly what, what happened. So we have the battles, the giants. As they walked, the children of Israel, there was, there was um, Og, the king of Bashan, and there was Sihon, the king of the Amorites. And um, the, the Israelites took them out before they entered in to God's promises. And uh, verse 21, and gave them a land as a, a heritage, for his mercy endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his mercy endures forever. Well, this was what he promised them. Could have saved himself a lot of time and trouble if they just would have listened to um, the two spies that uh, gave the good report instead of the ten spies that gave the bad report. It would have saved them a lot of 40 years of going around in circles and a lot of heartache. And um, they did not enter in because of unbelief. Um, and so the last part of this here in verses um, 23 to 26, it, it's for Israel, but it's very applicable to you and I. Verse 22, who remembered us in our lowly state, for his mercy endures forever. He rescues us from our enemies, for his mercy endures forever who gives food to all flesh for his mercy endures forever. And then it ends the same way it begins, oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. Why? Because his mercy endures forever. God never runs out of mercy. He has a continual flow. Uh, This section concludes, and it's very applicable for you and I, not just to the writer of this particular psalm that that um, recounts the part where they leave Egypt and brings them actually into the promised land. And so Psalm 136 
is that part of Israel's history that deals with those events. Again, the reoccurring phrase is the Lord's mercy is forever and ever and ever, and you never have to worry about him running out of it. Psalm 137 is called an imprecatory psalm. No, I did not say a purgatory psalm. I said an imprecatory psalm. So what in the world is an imprecatory psalm? Well, it's actually a psalm that is wanting vengeance and is pronouncing a curse on those Babylonians and how they treated the children of Israel. I'm going to read a paragraph uh, to about this period of time because you may think we are pretty well informed about that 70-year captivity because of Jeremiah, because of Ezekiel, and because of Daniel. But not really. And um, let me just read this and look, I'll explain a little bit what I'm talking about. The history or the historical books of the Old Testament do not record the history of the nation of Israel during the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. There's no record of that captivity. Now, it's true that Jeremiah prophesied about it, but he did not go with the captivities to Babylon. Ezekiel, he was in Babylon, but he was prophesying to the captives or the Jews that were there. Uh, We can only draw by inference the condition of the people. He was concerned more with his visions than he was with history. Also Daniel. Daniel was there from the time he was 17 for the whole 70-year duration. Um, But Daniel primarily is prophesying to the Gentile rulers. And that would have, of course, been Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. But we have no record Uh, from him at all concerning the captives themselves. The 70 years of the Babylonian captivity are a period of silence. It's a vacuum. It's a void as far as the historical books are concerned. The two books of Kings and uh, First and Second Chronicles bring us right up to the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem, But the next historical books you read is that of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And this is afterwards. They pick up the story after the 70-year captivity is over and the people are now back in the land. The captivity in Babylon has passed over because in God's plan, his clock stops when people are out of their land. For this reason, we have no record of this period. Now, I agree with this assessment. I believe the clock is stopped right now as it pertains to the nation of Israel. God promised them he would deal with them for 490 years. And after 483 of those years, Jesus came, he was rejected, and Israel was out of the land now for the second time. Well, that clock has stopped. And God is now working with what we call the age of grace, the Gentile dispensation. And so the clock has stopped and it hasn't started yet. And I personally believe what's going to happen is uh, that last person that needs to get saved gets saved when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Then the number is complete. Started at Pentecost, ends with rapture, church is out of here. Click, 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 click. God owes Israel seven years. 
And it just so happens that the book of Revelation from 6 to 19 is a seven-year period of time. And it goes to great lengths that we get it, that it's a seven-year period of time. It divides it in half, first of all, three and a half years. Then that's even made more um, driven into us. Sometimes it says 42 months, and sometimes it'll say 1,260 days, all saying the same thing over and over and over again. So we get it through our head up here, seven years altogether. And seven is a reoccurring number in the book of Revelation. Seven letters, seven churches, uh, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments, seven, 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 all over the place. So the idea with this in Psalm 137 is that uh, this gives great emphasis on Psalm 137 because it talks, it's one of the few in the Bible that gives us uh, what the people were actually going through um, during this 70-year period of time. All right, let's read it. Let's read the first six verses. Um, There's some nice songs out there written. Don McLean's got a good one called By the Rivers of Babylon, and it comes from Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. Well, now we're learning something about the people. When we remembered Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For those who were carried us away captive, they required a song of us. So now we're getting a little insight. Okay, you Jews, we want you to entertain us. We want you to sing for us. And those who plundered us required of us mirth, saying, sing us one of your songs. Sing us one of your worship songs from from the Psalms. And um, they're getting, they say in verse 4, how, how shall we sing this, the Lord's song in a foreign land? We're not in Jerusalem. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill. And if I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. The seven-year captivity, what we call the exile, is a major marker in the Bible. Um, if we didn't have that, we would not have the book of Daniel, which is one of the most important books for us here right now living today. They were out of the land at one time. Well, in 70 AD, they, after coming back to the land, they were driven out again by the Romans. Uh, we know from the book of Daniel Uh, that there's going to be uh, these world empires that are going to rule and dominate. Um, Six are past. Just go back to the beginning. We have Egypt, number one. We can trace archaeologically back as far as Egypt. So when you hear next time, you hear, I I always always like to roll my eyes when I hear, yeah, 46 billion years ago they found this uh, animal, and uh, they can't find anything really past Egypt, archaeologically speaking, with any certainty. And this is where the Jay Seegers and uh, our, the Ked Hams are so important today that they bring out the science in these things. And then there was Assyria, Assyrians. After these um, Assyrians, of course, we had the Babylonians this period of time. After them, and we're going to read, we're going to go at Isaiah shortly, the Medo-Persian Empire. 
which was defeated by Alexander the Great um, and the Grecian Empire. And uh, then we have the Roman Empire coming, and that's the last one. Uh, and there was the, those six. And Daniel tells us that there's one more that's coming. So we know all that just because of Daniel. We have Daniel ministering to uh, these to Nebuchadnezzar in particular, explaining to him the Gentile kings that were going to rule. And there's one that's yet coming. And at this point here, we're going to read in verses 7 through 9, this is where the vengeance, I, I told you it was um, imprecatory psalm or a psalm that wants vengeance because of the way they were treated when they were in captivity. Remember, O Lord, now here comes the prayer, the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem. Remember, Lord, when they raised it, when they raised it, I'm sure he's got the temple in mind, to its very foundation. O daughters of Babylon, who, who are to be destroyed? Happy shall be he who repays you as you have, uh, have served us. In other words, you're going to re-put your soul. And how you treated us, we're praying that vengeance comes. And then it says, happy shall he be who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. That's a pretty pretty um, graphic uh, prayer. But basically what they're saying, we've been treated in such a way that let it come back on you. Now I want to go on a little rabbit trail here. And um, I have you turn to the book of Isaiah that talks about the destruction of Babylon. Let's go to... Um, Let's go to um, Isaiah chapter 13, and it's simply called, verse 1, the burden against Babylon. Psalm 137 is a prayer saying you're going to get here someday, and here we have now Isaiah prophesying when Babylon would actually fall, the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Lift up a banner on high mountains, raise your voice to them, wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones, I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of the multitudes of mountains like the many peoples, uh, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, plural, because when Babylon fell, it wasn't just the Medes, it was the Medes and the Persians. There was two that were involved. Um, let's go over to verse 17 to prove my point. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Woe, who will, who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also, their uh, bowels will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. So that when the Medes and the Persians came, came in, Psalm 137 is actually being fulfilled because they're showing no mercy at all to the Babylonians. Their eyes shall not spare children. Uh, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, uh, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited. Now, what I just read is important because where I'm going next after this. So we're told here that after Babylon is destroyed, nor will it be settled 
from generation to generation. I'm just going to stop there and have you let that set in. Let's go to um, Jeremiah, who gave the prophecy, chapter 50. Now let's read a couple of verses from there. Chapter 50, let's pick it up. Verse 22, a sound of battle in the land of great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware you have been found and also caught. Of course, the night that Babylon fell, what were they doing? They were mocking the God of Israel by drinking out of the temple vessels. And that's when the famous handwriting on the wall came. It says, basically, your history. And uh, Belshazzar died that night, and it fell in one night. It was cut off that quickly. Babylon fell. What I want to point out here is what the prophecies tell us is that it'll never be rebuilt again or inhabited again. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to future. and I'm going to have you turn to Revelation chapter 14. Babylon literally has to be rebuilt. And what I'm going to say next is I believe that Babylon is rebuilt. And it's been something that I've been on a hobby horse uh, for uh, since, oh, 2000, somewhere around in there. I'm coming back from India one time. Um, I've seen all these reports for workers needed in the, in the building of the city of Dubai. And um, it caught my attention, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So let's just regress just a little bit. And let's just look at Revelation 14. It talks about God's people coming out of Babylon. So there has to be a Babylon in order for the people to come out of it. Now, before I read verse 6 here, let me just tell you that God will always leave a witness to testify of himself. In the Old Testament, that was why God chose Israel. They were to represent the God of Israel to the world. Um, after Jesus came and he was, John 1, 11 says, he came unto his own, his own received him not. And uh, he, in Luke 19 says, because you didn't know the time of your visitation, your enemies are going to build an embankment around you. They're going to surround you. They're going to destroy the city and the temple. Not one stone will be left upon another because you did not know the time of your my visitation. They should have known Daniel chapter 9. They didn't. And as a result, he prophesied, this is what's going to happen. Well, that was 32 AD. 38 years later, in 70 AD, the Roman 10th Legion came in, and we have now the second dysphoria or dispersion. The first one was for 70 years, but this one um, has lasted for, what are my notes, roughly 1,900 years, 1,878, if you want to know the exact number. And um, that was the period of time where Jesus said, now you're the light of the world. We're living in the church age right now. So what did he tell us to do? Go into all the world and, and what? We're supposed to be witnessing. So we're the salt, we're the light, we're the witness right now. Well, we're going to get raptured someday. 
And the way things are looking, it looks like sooner rather than later, at least I hope so. <laughs> and as soon as we're gone, we find that uh, there's two witnesses, according to Revelation 11, that will testify. I mean, they're called two what? Two what? Witnesses. So God, we're left. We're taken out. So what does God do? He, he brings in two witnesses. Oh, yeah, there's also 144,000 mentioned in Revelation 7, 12,000 each from the 12 tribes. So God has a witness there. But these are all killed, including, I believe, Moses and Elijah, who are the two witnesses. They're killed. So if God always leaves a witness and um, the witnesses are, are now been killed, who's doing the witnessing? Let's pick it up in verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Many people have quoted Matthew 24, verse 15. It says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world, and then the end shall come. I don't believe that can be fulfilled, because um, if everybody is going to hear it, I don't believe everybody will hear it by the time um, they are taken out. But this one verse right here tells us every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to hear what? Somebody say it out loud. What are they going to hear? They're going to hear the gospel. This is where it's fulfilled. And if you disagree, that's fine. I'm not, I wouldn't mix words about it, but you're wrong and I'm right. We'll just leave it at that. I knew I'd get a reaction from that one. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs and the waters. Okay, that's the first angel. He's preaching the gospel. Another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen. Well, in order for it to fall, it has to be. Is fallen, she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then a third angel after that one, remember, God always has a witness, and now he's using angels. A third angel followed them, saying, with a loud voice, if anybody worships the beast in his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lord, Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast or his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and their faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works will follow them. So much for universalism, or the belief that there, or um, the annihilist uh, doctrine that says that there is no eternal judgment. You can't dance around these scriptures. They're real, real clear what's being said here. And it's, it's forever, and um, forever and ever, for those that would take the mark of the beast. Dwight, what's your point? There's a Babylon, and there's a warning 
that it's falling. All right, now let's turn and go to chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 17 deals with, there's two types of, uh, uh, look at chapter 17, verse uh, five. It's called Mystery Babylon, the great, the, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. When the Bible speaks of abominations and fornications, it, it can be taken in two ways. One, there's a spiritual fornication, which is a false form of worshiping the Lord other than the clear teachings of Scripture. That's one type. It would be spiritual. The other is a literal, physical fornication. In chapter 17, the great harlot that's described here is the false church that will exist. If you go to the very last verse in chapter 18, it says, the woman who you saw on that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This tells us which city it is. John wrote this in 96 AD. Paul lost his life in Rome. Many Christians died in the Colosseum. I've, I've seen the catacombs. It's worth, it's worth going to Rome uh, to see the Colosseum and, and to see the, the catacombs and the amount of people that their blood was, was shed. And John was just couldn't console himself. He, verse 6, he saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. We're talking Rome here. A false religious system. Rome is the biggest cult in the world today. I don't know how to say it any more clearly than that. And yet, to keep up on current events, what's happening, we're finding major denominations making inroads and ways back to Rome. And boy, I could really get sidetracked here and um, name denominations that are making their way back to Rome. Anglican Church is one of them. Rick Warren with his um, um, peace program with Tony Blair is joining hands with his peace program. And um, who did the Pope meet with just today? I can't remember who it is, but... uh, um, Oh, he, he wants to work for um, global warming now. So he's letting down the doctrinal issues so that he can be more open and broad. But here's what's happening to the evangelical church on the same time. We're willing to set aside doctrine to have peace in a larger sense, all in the name of unity. In order for us to have that unity, we have to give up our doctrinal distinctives. Well, I'm sorry, I just cannot stand up here and tell you that you're either saved by grace or you're saved by works. But you can't, Paul makes it really clear. It's one or the other. And if you're going to try to do the works, then you have to do it perfectly. And if you screw up with one, you're guilty of all. That's what my New Testament teaches. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Roman Catholicism teaches just the opposite. You have to have works accompanied with, with the faith. And um, your sins can only really be forgiven at the Mass during what's called transubstantiation. And, you know, for us, I came out of the Protestant background. I'd say, what's the big deal? But I've known too many people who have come out of Roman Catholicism, and they don't get it. They say, that's what I got saved from. Why aren't you guys 
explaining more clearly the dangers of what Roman Catholicism is. Now, at this point, I'm going to challenge you to do your own homework. One of the best works, we have it in the bookstore with DVD, is a book called The Woman Who Rides the Beast by Dave Hunt. But there's also a book called The Two Babylons, and it's by Hyssop, or Hislop. And I think Dave got most of his information by this exhaustive, the book is that thick. It's the history of Babylon, and it's the history of Rome. And he calls them the two Babylons. And so when we look at John, he can't get it. In verse 6, his mind is totally blown, because this is the church, but they're responsible for the martyr of the saints. And, um, and then verse 18 tells us that it's the city of seven hills, that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth, it could only be Rome. Chapter 17 is a book that deals with spiritual fornication because it pollutes the true gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, it's a city, but it's Rome. Now, I believe, and there's good Bible teachers that I'm going to tell you disagree with, um, with this being one city versus two cities. But I, I believe in chapter 18 now, we have an economic city that is great, also called Babylon, and this one is more economic. What, how's my time going here? I'm, I'm doing okay. I got five minutes left, and I can go for 20 minutes, so I have no problem. Verse 1, chapter 18. I'm just kidding. We got a lot of time. After these things, I saw another angel coming down. So right there, we're t- I'm, I'm thinking we've got two different things going on here, two different cities. Coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. It's become a habitation of demons, of prisons for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean bird and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, in this sense, it is a literal, physical fornication. Verses 17, which is spiritual fornication. And with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues. That was the warning that was given back in chapter 14. So evidently there's Christians living in this city and saying, get out of Dodge because judgment is coming. For her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed for her double. In In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, Underline that. In the same measure, give her torment and sorrow, for she says in her heart, I'm a queen, I'm no widow, and there will, I will see no sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. She will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Now notice this, the kings of the earth who committed fornication, and I'm saying this literally right now, and lived luxuriously with her, they're going to weep 
and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. They're standing at a distance for fear of her torment. Interesting. Saying, alas, alas, that great city, well, now we know it's a city, Babylon, in one hour your judgment has come. Who's doing the mourning? It says, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. No one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple silk, scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, incense, frankincense, oil, wine, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and bodies. And this is the one I want you to see, the last thing here, and the souls of men. Whatever this city is doing, it's dealing with the trade and the, the buying and selling, literally, of human beings, um, trafficking in human souls. And the fruit that your soul longs for has gone from you, and all things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you're not going to find them anymore. And the merchants of these of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, a great city that was clothed of fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones. One hour her great riches came to nothing. This is also important, verse 17, because, well, I'll, I'll come back to that. Every shipmaster and all who travel by ship, sailors, and many as trade by the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like this? And they cried through dust on their heads, crying, wailing, alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships, this is important, of the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. All right, let's connect some dots here. I actually was so persuaded about what I see happening with the city of Dubai. Um, I had never heard anybody talk about Dubai before. I never even knew about Dubai. Matter of fact, Dubai has only been in existence as a city for the last 35 years. I was coming back from India, and there was these job posters because of all the construction that's going on in a place called Dubai. And I thought, that's interesting. And then I saw a poster that said, that came up and it said, the tallest building in the world is going to be built in Dubai. And I thought, I'm, I'm getting the tallest city in the world. And I'm thinking, I'm going back to the first Babylon. And what their goal was, was to build this tallest building in the world that would reach unto heaven and uh, that they would become one. We get Babylon from the word Babel because the Lord came down and confused their language. That was the first Babylon. And I am personally persuaded that Babylon is already here. It is uh, when we invaded Iraq, Saddam Hussein was rebuilding Babylon, and I can remember giving Bible studies, being all excited. Oh, they're rebuilding Babylon. Well, the war pretty much put an end to that. And the wording here, especially in in um, chapter 17 and the location of this, 
it always bothered me because I thought it had to be built in the same place. Well, what we read in Isaiah, remember, we read it would be destroyed and never be inhabited again. And not only that, this Babylon has to be a port city, and shipbuilders are interacting, and it's got to be the richest place on the planet, okay? Now I'm going to take you on a little tour of Dubai. So first of all, it's only been around. This is what's happened in the United Arab Emirate uh, by the, the Straits of Hormuz over there. And this has happened just in the last 35 years. I've been in ministry longer than that when this thing uh, started happening. Let me show you the tallest building in the world. Somebody said there might have been one just built, but this is it right here. Um, the tallest building in the world, and um, it is in um, Dubai. I went home and for two hours researched um, Dubai. I actually took a tour of it. Uh, they actually had a person giving a guided tour of it. Um, two million people live there. It did not exist 35 years ago. It was just a little trading thing. Actually, they, they were known at that time for trading pearls. Interesting, because that's what it says down here. One of the things that they traded was pearls. That's what they were known for. Number two, it has the ninth busiest port in the world. And there it is. This is in 35 years. We're talking in the top 10 of, of, uh, of business containing products that are coming in and going out of. Number three, it has the world's third biggest airport, a third busiest, and I believe it's the second largest, and here's a picture of it, also within the last 35 years. Number four, what you're looking at here, is they decided to create a city that would draw just the opulent and the wealthy to it. And so this is called Falcon City. In it, they recreated the seven wonders of the ancient world, like the Eiffel Tower, the Great Pyramid, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Great Wall of China. And it's like going to this huge um, amusement park. They have the largest um, amusement park in the world, far passing that of uh, Disney, Disneyland. All right, number five. I remember watching this on Modern Marvels. This is called Palm Island. And Donald Trump, when he talks about he has, he has his own, right where the palms begin to spread out, he's got his own hotel there. And when you talk about investment with Trump, he says, forget Wall Street, Dubai. I read one article today that is hinting that they're, they're going to, because of the, the, the falling in our country in status of moving the UN to Dubai. Now, gang, if that happens, it's slam dunk as far as I'm concerned. But I already think it's slam dunk as far as I'm concerned. This, they, they're creating um, beach property here out of nothing. They're, they pumped the sand. And uh, did anybody catch the modern marvel when they did this? Uh, yeah, a couple of you have. It's an unbelievable project. They're taking uh, sand out of the ocean, and now they're building multi-million dollar condos and villas. And they, I was actually on tour on, and watching this, this thing today, also within the last 35 years. Number six, 
is the world's largest shopping mall. It's the largest one in the entire world. And um, inside of it, they have, uh, um, uh, you can go skiing in the middle of the desert in this place because they got a ski hill in there. And what I found out when I went on the tour, my friend Richie, who plays up here on Wednesday night, we're both skiers, I said, Richie, they said the night they have the, the, the longest black diamond, if you're a good skier, uh, run in this place, in the world. And so just let that settle in for a second. And um, as far as what it's primarily known for is uh, prostitution. They've legalized it. And when it gets into this, there's 300,000 people that live in a community less than an hour away that are shuffled in and out on a, on a daily basis. It costs you money to get a working permit. If you don't have money, it takes you two years to pay that off. If you can't pay it off, they'll take your passport away from you and they will put you in jail. And there's, there's American tourists that are in jail because they lost their passport in Dubai. Um, I w- I'm going to encourage you to do your own homework, but the richest of the rich, the primary draw here is prostitution. And um, I read uh, an article that basically says you can go anywhere from the gas station to the clothing store to anywhere, and it's encouraged and even sanctioned by the government there. And so now what do you have? You have the richest people in the world. Oh, by the way, they have the big, one of the biggest harbors for these huge yachts that also come to Dubai. And, um, and where is it centered? Right at a very, very critical part in the Middle East. And we have uh, the most opulent and wealthiest people in the world indulging primarily in what this is called here, trading souls and literal fornication which is the draw to get them there. I think Babylon is up and set and ready to go. And um, I went online today and I found out there's people who have written books about this now and are more persuaded than I am. So be a Berean. I've just said some stuff that should challenge you, saying Dwight's either way off or I'm going to be a Berean and check it out for myself. All you have to do is Google Babylon and Dubai, and you'll be surprised what comes up. And, um, and do your own homework with this. How am I doing? Well, I got past, um, let's go back to Psalm 137, and let's keep it in context, because when I say we do teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the Bible, we, we do. But in Psalm 137, we have what the people were going through emotionally when they were in Babylon and now they're praying this predatory prayer for vengeance. And it's destroyed in one night by the Medes and the Persians. But then again, the Bible predicts Babylon's going to come again. Well, gang, I think it's here. And I'll tell you when the lights went on for me. When I heard they were building the tallest building in the world and where it was, I thought, I wonder. I remember calling Dave Hunt, David Hawking, I, everybody that I respected prophetically, and I said, guys, show me where I'm wrong. And David Hawking, 
the guy that did most of the, the research that I've been studying from him studied under David. He says, that's an interesting thought you got there, Dwight. And um, I guess it remains to be seen. But uh, the tears of exile in Psalm 137. I have to leave it there because I want to do 138 too. So switching gears big time, let's finish with a Psalm of David. Uh, some people don't think David wrote Psalm 138 because it says, I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name. And some people are saying, well, stop, wait a second, how can we do that? Because Solomon built the temple, not David. Well, the word there literally is one for um, tabernacle. It can be temple or either they're interchangeable. So I, I, I don't get too hung up on that. I think David is the writer here. <clears throat> for your loving kindness, for your truth, for you have magnified your word above your name. Now, here is one of the most important things you're going to get out of the study tonight. Again, getting back to the inerrancy of scriptures, the Lord's name is holy, it's to be uh, reverenced and revered. And day and night, the four cherubim say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come, and they worship him forever and ever and ever. And even with that holiness of his name, this verse here tells us that he holds what you're holding in your lap tonight in higher authority than his own name. Why? Heaven and earth will pass away, but not the book that you're holding on to tonight. goes on to tell us, In that day when I cried out to you, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. And all the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord. When you hear the words of your mouth, yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. It says, all the kings of the earth are going to praise him someday. Well, that's exactly what Romans 14 verse 11 says. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee is going to bow of those in heaven, those on the earth, and notice, and those under the earth. Interesting. So all the nations and creation will bow down to him. The last the verses from 6 till 8, as we wind this up tonight, is that, you know, he started, guys, your walk, how you got saved, I'm not sure, but he started it. He sought you out. So we read here, though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. And though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. And the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. All right, put your name in there. The Lord is going to perfect Here's another way of saying it in Philippians. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, he's going to complete it. He'll make it perfect until the day of Jesus Christ. He started the work in you. He called you. Amen? Then he called you and saved you. Well, you don't, if, if you could work this out on yourself, you and I are in big trouble. Somebody want to say amen to that? We're in big trouble. But if he started the work, Philippians says he started the good work, he's able to finish it. 
What he started, he'll finish, he'll complete it, he's gonna get you there. And then it says, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. And we're right at our time. Bingo, let's stand, we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that you don't change. Thank you that this book is inerrant. Thank you that you tell us about things that are coming down the pike and um, actually giving us things and road markers actually to look for just to show us how late it really could possibly be. Lord, in closing again, I just want to pray for the Stoffel family and the Campbells again and just pray that your peace would be upon them, especially Aaron. And um, those that are here tonight, Lord, just bless our fellowship now as we go out. And we thank you so much, Lord, for your word and your mercy, knowing that your mercy endures forever. All God's people said, amen.